have questions about your health? A simple pill won't fix your problems. And there's so many points and opinions on the internet that a web search just leaves you more confused. So why not take the time and listen to those who know best? Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective right here and now. So let's bring it to your host, Dr. Jonathan Carp, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, proudly nominated for a National Association of Broadcasters 2019 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are live from the Killarney's Public House Studios at Ryder University. Welcome to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute presents Health 411, truthful health information to expand your knowledge and perspective. The Ryder University Health Studies Institute communicates cross-disciplinary perspectives affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the business of healthcare. I am in the studio today with Antonia Conti, our producer, and our esteemed guest, Dr. Phoebe Stapleton. Dr. Phoebe Stapleton uh, is an assistant professor in the Rutgers University Ernest Mario School of Pharmacy, Department of Pharmacology and Toxicology, and the Joint Graduate Program in Toxicology. That's a mouthful. That's you. a mouthful. That's well, true. Welcome, Dr. Stapleton. Okay. We are here today, and we are going to talk about, in the most global terms, air pollution. Yes. Something that affects all of our health, because we all do breathe. Yes. And we want to take that conversation, ultimately, into your, your, your specific area of research in air pollution, which is nanoparticles, especially man-made nanoparticles. It is, yeah. Um, but in leading up to that, won't you tell us a little bit of, about your background and how you came to study this important health topic? Sure. My background is very convoluted. My uh, expertise was actually in athletic training and biology. And from there, I moved into kinesiology and exercise physiology. And so that's where it gets extra convoluted because I learned uh, from my graduate work about cardiovascular physiology and specifically microcirculation, so the smallest of blood vessels, the arterioles, and how they lead in uh, resistance and making blood pressure, but also how they lead to tissue perfusion and then taking those skills and applying it into this inhalation toxicology. So answering the question how something we inhale affects the cardiovascular system. Excellent. And so you, you're a great example for any of our students who might be listening, is that they're, they're, you're not locked in to any one thing where you when you start out. You are not locked in, so, and there is no straight line. Because somebody's going to ask you, what are you going to do with that major? You're going to echo me and say, whatever you want to do. Whatever you want to do, exactly, <laughs> and wherever you want to take it. It's just an entry-level degree into something else. So okay. whatever interests you. Okay. And so now you study um, things that are in the air that we breathe. Now, we all breathe. That's a, that's a very, very important thing. That's the thing. first thing to rule out, yes. Yeah. And we all assume that, oh, we're breathing oxygen. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But oxygen is not the major component of air. There that's are other true. There are the gases in there. That's true. And there are things in the air. There are. There and are so many can, things. Can yeah. you tell us about yeah. how you got into that? So we got into that originally in my postdoctoral fellowship, and that was um, looking at that question, how things we inhale and globally affect the cardiovascular system. Uh, we started looking at that because the epidemiology evidence identifies that after a high smog day in a city, for example, 24 hours after, the hospitals will see increased incidence in cardiovascular-related morbidity and mortality. So we're looking at heart attack victims, stroke victims, angina patients, and that isn't intuitive. You'd think that it would be a pulmonary reaction. We'd be looking at emphysema patients or COPD, excuse me, or asthma, something to that effect. Um, but we're not. 
So we wanted to know how really the particles that were in the air in those high pollution days were affecting the cardiovascular system. So what makes them different? So your interest started at a big a big level, it's a population It level. is, yeah. I'm a little different than some other scientists that I work with in that yeah. we start with a human health relevant problem directly and now mm -hmm. we're working almost backwards in some cases down to that mechanistic level of how we're actually getting those outcomes. And so you're studying so things that are in the air, and so the most common area thing that people research is the lungs. That's true. And then you're saying the data started to take you in a different direction. And that was lucky for me because my expertise was in that different direction already. So my expertise was in microvascular physiology. So mm -hmm. I literally on day one could take all the skills that I had learned in my graduate training, microvascular techniques, and I could directly apply them into this postdoctoral question. So we had, we use an animal model primarily. And so we could start our experiments with our animals that had been in our inhalation facility. So our inf inhalation facility, excuse me, mimics what we'd see in a high air pollution day in some cases, a really an occupational exposure day. Yeah. Well, I certainly can remember, you know, growing up around here, going into, um, even as a teenager, probably worse then than it is now, going into Manhattan and then coming back and then seeing all sorts of black things when I blew my nose and my mucus and even on my clothes, things there, stuck to them. There are. Yeah. And that's, I guess, one of the good things about the research that we've been doing mm -hmm. is that it's getting harder and harder to find these areas, these pockets. Yes. Um, that, that doesn't happen as much anymore. I'm just no, I'm being honest. They are, it, it doesn't, yeah. and it's great that, that it doesn't. It shows that, that there's been a, a programmatic change. Um, but you're right. There are areas like Denora, Pennsylvania, historically, for example, that has this inversion of um, particulates and gases. And even in Salt Lake City, you see this um, inversion. And then you think of the wildfires that were taking place in California and just the population density in California, as you said, Manhattan. So the numbers of people who are exposed in an acute situation or a high smog day like Beijing, consistently exposed. So like you said earlier, we all breathe. So there are yes. exposures taking place And we day. want to keep doing that as, as long as, That's as, the goal, as, long as, as possible. healthy as possible. And you mentioned the word, word particulates. I did. And I, and I you know, half-heartedly said, you know, with a smile on my face, said you breathe these particulates and you can see them in your mucus. That's not the kind of particulates that you are interested in. No, it's not. It's okay. not. So those particulates that you could see are, uh, with, are known as particulate matter 10. Those are particles that are 10 microns in a single diameter. And so those don't get as deeply into the lung or in the respiratory tract. So they kind of stay so in the So the cilia and mucus that we have act as natural filters to keep that stuff out. Exactly. It either ke it keeps it out of the lung. So okay. you still get exposed to it. Sadly, you end up coughing it up or swallowing it. So you're still exposed, but you're, it doesn't get into the lung. And, and that's really important. Um, so then the High smog days, the warnings that come out are regarding particulate matter 2.5. And so those are a little bit smaller than that 10. And even more concerning than that, we've started looking at what are known as ultrafine particulates and ultrafine particulate matter. And that's a subfraction of the PM 2.5 that we see health warnings about. Are those about. what people call nanoparticles? They're very similar. They're in the okay. nano range. So by definition, they're the same um, in that. Now to give us, to give anybody who's listening uh, some perspective, yeah. How large is a How large is a nanoparticle? Yeah, a nanoparticle. So a nanoparticle is smaller than a red blood cell. Um, it's about 
in between the size of a virus and a bacteria. So there are many bacteria that are larger, and that's because you can see them on a slide um, under a microscope. But nanoparticles, you can't see under a slide under a microscope. So about about the size of a virus. So these are pretty, very small things that theoretically, at least at, well, we'll get into some details of this, could um, get into a cell, they could attach to a cell. They, they're things that are small enough that they could interfere with what the cells of our body are doing. They can, okay. they can. And that's one of the one of the major concerns that we have with this size of particles is that we know that they get in, as you pointed out, we all breathe, and we all breathe the size particle. These particles in particular are concerning because they get deeper into the lung. They get into the alveolar region where those cilia that you mentioned earlier don't exist. And so there's no great escape route for them. So the so options- So they get past the natural defenses, exactly. the mucus and cilia. Exactly, they and, get past the barriers. And get to the smallest things. And the, the, the other thing that we need to be aware of is that we're breathing these things. Um, are these naturally occurring things or are they man-made things or a combination of both? So a combination of both. So we started looking at using nanomaterials in particular. We did a lot of our work in um, titanium dioxide nanoparticles, and we did that for a couple of reasons. One is- well, So let me just take a step back. Sure. Titanium dioxide, is that titanium that's something dioxide. we all know about, but we might not know that we know about it. That's that's accurate, <laughs> that's accurate. So, so tell us about what, the, what that so is. So titanium dioxide is a naturally occurring mineral, um, and therefore looking at FDA and things like that, it's a, it's a naturally occurring product, and so it's a little bit different than chemicals that are produced. Um, it's a very low reactive metal. It doesn't have a lot of chemistry associated to it, which is why we use it in particular. Mm -hmm. um, with respect to nanomaterials, it's really in everything because it is this low reactive or low reactivity product. And so this is the chemical that's allowed sunscreens now to move into the SPF ranges well above 45. It allows sunscreens to be invisible. It allows them to be aerosolized. And so we started using them as a surrogate for air pollution instead. So just, just, just to expand the list a little bit, you mentioned sunscreens, and we mm -hmm. all know what, what those are. Um, they're also involved in, they're in paints, they're in tiles, they're in cements, they're in some uh, electronic kind of devices. So these are materials that have a lot of properties to them that, that you know, m humans find useful in terms of science and they, research. Science and... Personal care products, and I guess most importantly, especially in this geographic area, Dunkin' Donuts took it out of their powdered sugar in 2015 because it oh, made wow, the powdered sugar look more white and more appetizing for the clients. And so it really is difficult to escape from. So this, th so this is something very interesting. So it's in food, it's in products, mm -hmm. and it can also be aer uh, in the air. And, yes. and so we can breathe it. And I guess you're here and you have research because breathing these things with these metals is not necessarily a good thing. And there are health consequences of this. That's true. And, and, and we do want to get to that. And we will talk to that after we take some brief word for some underwriting announcements. You're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 
1077 The Bronx, 1077 thebronkcom live from the Clarney's Public House Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Dr. Jonathan Karp in the studio today talking with Dr. Phoebe Stapleton from Rutgers University School of Pharmacy. And we are talking about air pollution mm -hmm. and we are getting into an aspect of air pollution that Dr. Stapleton studies and that is air that has nanoparticles in it. At the end of the last segment, we were talking about a specific nanoparticle called titanium dioxide, which is in a lot of products that people make and people breathe this stuff. And you mentioned that you know it's even been taken out of some food products where it was put in to make things whiter because I'm assuming there is some risk about breathing these things. Can you tell us a little bit of what that might be? There's there's some risk about breathing these things. These are particles that are similar to those ultrafine particles in air pollution. Uh, the beauty of these is uh, looking at titanium dioxide as a surrogate for the ultrafine air pollution. We've removed all of the scientific concern, I guess. So we don't have any gases involved. We don't have any fenton chemistry. We don't have any different chemistries at all because it's all the same product uh, that we're aerosolizing and exposing our animals to. And so when we do that, we get um, a reduction in blood flow in the heart and a reduction in blood flow overall in different tissue beds 24 hours after an inhalation exposure to these materials. And that is of particular importance to us because this is the lowest reactivity particle that we could identify. And so we can always make the situation and when you, worse. And what, what we're getting to is you breathe this in and it has effects in the lungs, mm -hmm. but it, is it restricted to the lungs? So it's interesting that you bring that up. The, the theories of how we're getting this reaction from the lung to the cardiovascular system is, is still open-ended. There are three main theories. One is um, an inflammation of the lungs, and that kind of spills over into the cardiovascular system. Mm -hmm. It could be a neurological effect because there are a lot of nerves in the nose canal. They directly link up to the brain. Uh, those in the lungs as well. So it could be a, a neurological uh, issue. And lastly, what you're referring to is mm. the translocation. So the idea that these particles don't indeed stay in the lung mm. and that they can access other parts of our body. Because they are very, very tiny and they can get in one's bloodstream. They can theoretically attach to cells or change the way cells are working and then move to another place they can. in and the, the body. And the interesting thing is that um, some research, not ours, but some others have done research on just that question. We know that they can get in, but can they get back out again? And it turns out that a lot of these particles are big enough to get in, but actually too big to go through the kidneys and be excreted. So trying to figure out where they go, where they deposit, how long they stay there, what happens when they're there. These are all some big open-ended questions. Yeah, and these are the kind of questions that might, we're, we're gonna focus in on what we're breathing, yeah. but when you, you hear about like all these, some cool new technologies that are out there that are using like carbon nanoparticles yes. too. The things that we're talking about today also apply to those things as well, do they? Or they, uh, I'm making a statement, but I'm really asking a question. They do, <laughs> so they do. Um, some of our early work was done using multi-wall carbon nanotubes, and those are the materials that have allowed cell phones to get smaller and more efficient. They, like you refer to all of the carbon fiber sporting goods. Mm -hmm. And more um, recently, they've been using nano silver as an antimicrobial agent as well. And lastly, and this is the area that our research is going in um, very quickly, is looking at nano-sized plastics as well, given the environmental concern with plastics. And so it is just that our titanium dioxide work really is representative of these smaller particles. And then we can, we can play with them a little bit. We can make them 
fibers, for example, with the carbon nanotubes, we can make them uh, metal that has some reactivity to it or ionic capability like silver or gold. Or we can look at plastics, which have a whole other um, confounding variables. Mm -hmm. so, yeah. and, and these are things that are getting into our bodies and that have the, the potential at least to change our physiology they do. And, and kinds of thing. And this is... Um, particularly interesting because we go through stages too. We have a lot of different things. And I'll take you, one of the things that you study is what happens when pregnant animals breathe these things. Exactly, exactly. So we hadn't made the, our scientific question difficult enough to start out of how something <laughs> you inhale affects the cardiovascular system. But then we started to kind of play with our system. We had young, healthy male animals. They were representative of yeah. occupational exposure. And really that's the best that society has to offer. If you can have a 23-year-old male healthy end up with some kind of cardiovascular dysfunction, that's it only gets worse from there. And so we started looking at metabolic for the per, syndrome. For the, for the person. For the person, for the right, for the yeah, exposure, yeah, yeah. right? So it's, these it are- good for the experiment. It was, oh, as I mean, a yeah, scientist, you, it was fantastic. Don't get now. me wrong, right? <laughs> but um, looking at the human health relevance, that's a concern. <laughs> yeah. And so um, these are- animal models that say haven't eaten McDonald's every day of their life. They have gotten exercise every day. They didn't have any hormonal changes associated with being the female sex. And so um, originally we started looking at metabolic syndrome and see if we mm -hmm. could make that worse. And what exposures. is metabolic syndrome? So it's a good point. Metabolic syndrome is almost a pre-diabetes. So this is um, any syndrome has um, X number of factors to be able to qualify to be diagnosed with a syndrome. And in this case, an individual would need to be pre-diabetic, have dyslipidemia or high cholesterol, high blood fats, um, usually be overweight or obese. There's a long line of negative metabolic constructs to be diagnosed with metabolic syndrome. Um, but we moved from New Jersey from West Virginia a few years ago, and West Virginia is one of the most unhealthy states in the nation, and metabolic syndrome is on the rise nationwide. And so we thought maybe if we put our metabolic syndrome model in, we would be able to exacerbate the cardiovascular disease or increase it. Um, and it turns out that those animals were pretty sick to start with. Um, so we looked around for other models and decided that from a cardiovascular perspective, the maternal fetal model is fascinating because it has to go. Okay, explain what you mean. What do you mean by the maternal fetal so model? So the maternal fetal model is, is pregnancy. Okay. So in order for a pregnancy to be successful, the mom has to uh, grow and accommodate, and especially from a cardiovascular context. They need to make new blood vessels. The right. blood volume needs to increase for everything to come out well at the end. Um, and so we were wondering if exposure to high air pollution or to our nanomaterials would and would perturb that if we would have... So the angiogenesis is really important for a developing fetus. The angiogenesis is really important, and then the distribution of blood flow mm -hmm. is really important, and that went back to our uh, microcirculation mm -hmm. physiology. And so being able to get the blood from the heart to the uterus, through the placenta, and into the fetus on a regular basis all correctly is really important to get yeah. a successful outcome. And we know, not from your research, but from you know going back decades now, mm -hmm. that if you compromise that, even like with cigarette smoke, right? Yeah. You have low birth weight yeah. babies, you have babies with 
behavioral problems, learning yep. problems, yeah. and a whole bunch of other things going on. That was a selling point in the 1950s yeah. that women were encouraged to smoke because their labor and delivery would be easier. Because they would <laughs> be giving <laughs> they would be giving birth to smaller babies. Exactly. Isn't it interesting so, how the mores of society have changed? Right. And yeah. now look at us. We're concerned about gestational diabetes you, with, and two big babies. With huge babies. So. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You don't want you don't want yeah. that either. Yeah. Um, but what, what you're studying in this model is not cigarette smoke. No, no, no. no, no. no we're no, studying. No. Those um, so that's it. We've taken all of the other parts of cigarette smoke out. We've taken all of the tars out, all of the gases out, and we're looking just at the particles themselves. If the particles getting into the mom's lungs can lead to outcomes like intrauterine growth restriction, for example, and um, small babies being born. And when we look at that, coming back out to that epidemiological context. Uh, the evidence is there in that where we see high smog days, we also see small um, small birth weights. And so now trying to figure out if so there's, there's a, a connection. Co- there's a correlation then between the number of high smog days when a woman is pregnant and the, at least on an epidemiological level mm-hmm. on the size of their of There their is. And when you, look oh, at it, when you look at it in a global sense, mm-hmm. the maps match up match up very well. They almost overlay each other uh, between high smog days and uh, high air pollution concentrations and small birth weight. And so I, I would hope you would agree that doing this purposefully in people might not be a good thing to do. And you've mentioned several times that you've built an animal model to help study this. And um, and the way you set it up, I think, is a, a, a very important way for people to realize why scientists use animals sometimes. That's true. That's and, true. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. We have a really hard time getting human volunteers, especially <laughs> pregnant women. They're just not beating down the door to sign up for our studies. Yeah, to, um, to breathe something that is potentially no, toxic to, to their fetus, right, to baby. Right, to breathe an unknown toxicant. Um, they're, they're just not signing up for that. So there, there are ways that other scientists have been able to get around it. They've been able to look at uh, placental donations, for example, things like that, to look for some of these materials and chemicals to see if they translocate. Um, but in our case, we use an animal model to try to mimic as much as possible. Mm-hmm. And what animal do you use? So we use the rat model, okay. and we do that because... And, and that's important for our listeners to realize, too, because a lot of people think, oh, you have to study primates or you have to study dogs Correct. or things like that. No, Correct. but you can use rats and mice, which make up 98 99% of animal research that's out there. We do, and one of the reasons that we do that is the placenta and the placentation between a human and a rat is surprisingly similar. And so we're able to look at a lot of our mechanisms and a lot of our cells using that model and without our human subjects. Wow. How about that evolution, huh? (laughs) You're not that far from a rat, Dr. Carb. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Stableton. I I appreciate that. Um, Well, with that, let's take a quick break for some underwriting. Uh, We'll be right back with more healthcare talk. You are listening to Health 411 on 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. From healthcare to the environment around us and everything in between, Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences, is here expanding your knowledge and perspective. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Killarney's Public House Studios. You're listening to Health 411. We are in the studio today with Professor Phoebe Stapleton from Rutgers University talking about air pollution. And we were talking about her model, the way she studies air pollution in pregnant animals. And what she was telling us is she uses a rat model, pregnant rats, and she exposes them to things that the the mothers are breathing. Mm -hmm. And she looks for changes in the 
way that the mother's circulatory system is connecting to the pups yeah. um, that are inside the rat. Now, rats are sort of interesting because they have, I don't know, five to 12 pups. So you have a, a good number of subjects in there. So you can tell us a little bit about your model system and then we'll lead up to some of the specifics of what you're studying. Yeah, so we have an uh, inhalation facility at Rutgers University, specially designed for our rodent exposures. And it's one of very few nationwide and one of very few in an academic setting in particular. Um, and so we use technology and expertise from NIOSH, which is the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health out of Morgantown. Mm -hmm. And they helped us design this facility. And it allows us to have a whole body inhalation. And so that means that our animals are perfectly comfortable in our, in our facility. And they actually usually take a nap and groom themselves a little bit, but they're, they're very content for the time that they're in there. Mm -hmm. uh, they get some snacks. And then that allows, though, for a natural exposure. The animals are inhaling. The so particles. the animals are leading their normal lives. They're walking around their cages. They're mm -hmm. napping. They're eating. They're sleeping. Yep. They're scratching and whatever else. You whatever want to else do. they're doing. And, yeah. and you are, in a sense, controlling the airflow mm -hmm. over these critters. Yes. And how do you how do you determine then how much how much of these particles, how many nanoparticles are these critters? Breathing. So um, the number that they're breathing is determined by previous work. So we've identified a concentration that matches up well with occupational exposures. Um, we're still kind of on the earlier end of all of these studies. And so we're st still starting out at a high concentration. We can always work our way down, but we want to find out our effects first and then see if we can still find them at lower concentrations. And you mentioned occupational exposure, which is NIOSH, I'm sure, is concerned with that. But yes. you also mentioned a lot of products. Yes. That, 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 so it's not just people who are working in these factories who are exposed. It's All not. of us are exposed to these things that you're studying. It is. It's not just occupational exposure, and it's also indoor exposure mm -hmm. as well. So it's not just the uh, EPA's PM 2.5 reading for that day. That's just outside wherever their device happens to be uh, to be measuring the concentrations. But there are many things throughout the day that can influence the particles that you're exposed mm -hmm. to. You can be behind a diesel truck as you're driving up Route 1, for example, and get all kinds of exposure. Mm -hmm. So um, that's true. It's not just the occupational so exposure. You, so your, your system where you have the animals mm -hmm. in, theoretically, you, can ex you could study you know, daily exposure, you could study against pulse expo exposure. Yes. It's a model that is can be very flexible depending on the research question you're trying to ask at yes. a given time. So that's one of the beauties of our inhalation facility is that we can do just as you're alluding to. Everything is monitored in real time, so that includes the temperature in the inhalation facility, the humidity, the concentration of the particles, the speed of the airflow. And that means not only can we keep that within uh, regulatory confines as we're delivering those and keeping our animals safe on that exposure in that day, but then tomorrow we would have a very similar exposure. And on Thursday, we'd have a very similar exposure as well, which for pregnancy is really important because we only have so many days. Right. That and you can, and you can have the exposure at, at different gestational ages too. Yes, Very yes, early, can. near the time of mm -hmm. implantation, yep. sort of in the middle, and also exposure near the time of birth. Yes. E even, you know, when... A couple days before. A couple days before. A couple before hours before. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you can look at all different physiological effects. Yeah. yeah. So it's interesting you bring mm -hmm. that up. That was just one of the studies that uh, came out last January. We did just that. We looked at the cardiovascular outcomes of exposing uh, early, mid, and late gestation as well. And in those, it was just a single exposure. We wanted to know 
if the trimester that the animals were exposed in, if that would influence the cardiovascular and, health. And, and the fact that you're going to have a paper published sort of suggests it does. It suggests it does. <laughs> so um, interestingly, they, we found outcomes uh, at early gestation, and we found outcomes at late gestation, but it seemed that if the animals had a single exposure right in the middle um, of the second trimester, that the outcomes were not as severe as they were at the beginning or at the end. No, oh, that's, that's interesting. interesting, and that's a similar dose adjusted was, for size of the it was developing. the same. Mm -hmm. It was the same dose for each of the animals, and it suggests all of the kind of the buildup, the oh. growth that takes place at the beginning, right around implantation. Oh. But then also at the end, um, the fetus are really getting larger. That's that's kind of their job over mm -hmm. the last couple of days is just to put on put on weight um, to make sure they're as healthy as possible before delivery. And so this exposure really impaired that ability to put on the weight. Very interesting. Are male and female offspring equally affected? That is one of the other studies we're working on recently, and they are not. So some of our previous work has identified uh, changes between males and females, and some of our upcoming work will also identify these differences. It seems that there's a difference in the growth and development of the progeny. Uh, actually, we just finished a study out to about a year of age that so we were tracking the male and female progeny. Um, and it seems that the females uh, grow just as their control counterparts do, but mm -hmm. the males actually get larger. And so we're still trying to figure out if that's kind of back to that metabolic syndrome mm -hmm. component, if it really is um, obesity. Yeah, so or large is not always good. Large is mm -hmm. not always good. Right. No, not in this context mm -hmm. um, or in the human context necessarily. Mm -hmm. And so we want to see if they have metabolic syndrome and obesity or if really they are just larger. Right. And so we're still finishing up the studies to identify yeah. those differences. And you, and you mentioned uh, sort of the, that physiology, but you also mentioned inflammation, um, neurological, it can be behavioral. And I'm assuming all those things are sort of on your plate. They are of things to study in these in these creatures. They are. That's the that's the beauty of asking this question of of exposure during pregnancy. We've kind of opened Pandora's box that we can look at how the moms uh, grow and their outcomes during pregnancy and even during postpartum time points. We can look at the fetal health overall and the health of the litter, and then we can look at those offspring and progeny and really the health span or lifespan of those offspring in that subsequent generation. And so then we have all of the mechanisms. Is it inflammatory? Is it neurological? Is it translocation? Is it sex? Lots of questions. Yeah, so neat, thing, neat things that are going on. Yeah, it's a great place. And, and all this came out of an observation is that what people were breathing was influencing their circulatory system. Yes. And so when you talk about these effects, at least let's come back to your, your sweet spot. Yeah. It's sort of the microcirculation. Mm -hmm. What are you actually measuring in your, in your animals, in the offspring? So we're measuring in the offspring, we're measuring the hearts primarily because all of our animals have a heart. And mm. so... When you say hearts, yes, they all have a heart. They so all what, have a heart. What is it about the heart you're measuring? So when we look at the heart, we look at the microcirculation of the heart. And so we take out um, a vessel, we isolate it, and we will dissect it out of of the hearts, and we find that vessel specifically branching off of the left anterior descending artery of the heart, which also is a mouthful. That's one of the major arteries. It just is. For, for people who are not used to the physiology, it it's is. one of the major arteries that branches off that fills, gives blood and oxygen and everything to the muscles of the heart. It is. So in the human sense, it is known also as the LAD, and even better, is known as the widowmaker vessel. So this is the vessel that's responsible for feeding the left ventricle of the heart. And of course, if the left ventricle of the heart doesn't get the oxygen, doesn't get the nutrients, doesn't get the blood flow, it can't pump. And if it can't pump, blood doesn't go anywhere. 
And so that's why it's known as the Widowmaker vessel because a myocardial infarction or better known as a heart attack associated with the LAD um, leads to a, a quick demise. And so we look at how that branch functions. If it dilates to the same chemical factors or mechanical factors as the controls or if it constricts to the same factors or if that balance is shifted somehow toward more constriction and less dilation. So you, you take this, this vessel out and you'll give things to it to see how it changes and you compare that to animals whose mothers have not been exposed. We do. To, to, to these sort of things. We do. And so we see, um, we see this dysfunction starting actually at a fetal time point. So we don't look at the branches of the heart in the fetus because they're teeny tiny. But we do look at the tail artery in the fetus. This is a functional okay. organ upon birth. Um, but it gives kind of a systemic picture of what's going mm -hmm. on in the animal. And then we've started looking at the hearts of animals growing up from that time point. So uh, weanling which would be kind of teenagers, juveniles, young adults, all the way out now to our 12-month animals, and we see this coronary dysfunction. Um, that started in utero persists in utero. for a long time. Persists through the lifespan, essentially, okay. of these animals. Um, and now more recently, we have some preliminary evidence that I was able to show at a conference this summer that shows uh, fibrotic lesions in the 12-month-old animals. And so what do you mean by fibrotic lesions? Looking at really areas of ischemia. So it looks mm -hmm. like... Ischemia meaning... Meaning no blood flow. Low blood flow. Right? Right. But inconsistent low blood okay. flow. So heart pain or angina, reduced blood flow to areas of mm -hmm. the heart repeatedly in these animals who, as you said, the only difference between these animals and their controls is that they were exposed to these nanoparticles Their mother pregnancy. was exposed to these things. True, their mother was exposed during pregnancy. Yeah. So it's, it's very convoluted. It is very convoluted. And you mentioned briefly some plastic work that you're doing now. We please, are. Please introduce that, and I'll ask you more in the, in the next segment. So we're really excited about some of our plastic work. Of course, there's this environmental concern with plastic microparticles mm. being everywhere and hard to, um, hard to be able to collect and hard to be able to quantify. And now we're starting to look at nanoplastics, which are even more difficult to quantify, but do get deeper into the system especially in this maternal fetal system. Yeah, and that's an that becomes an environmental health issue exactly. as well that we want to hear more about. Okay. After some brief underwriting announcements, you're listening to Health 411 on 107.7 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. A dose of knowledge a day keeps a doctor away. Rider University's Health Studies Institute presents Health 411. And back with your daily dosage is Dr. Jonathan Carr, Professor of Biology, Behavioral Neuroscience, and Health Sciences. 1077 The Bronco, 1077 thebronkcom Live from Killarney's Public House Studios, welcome back to Health 411. We are in the studio today with Dr. Phoebe Stapleton, and we are talking about her research, her model of studying what happens to a growing fetus um, when the mother is exposed to things in the air that enter the mother through the lungs, that ultimately have an effect on the developing circulatory system um, when she is pregnant. And the developing circulatory system would be of her pups, and yep. since you study a, a rat model. And at the end of the last segment, we were hearing a little bit about her, some of her more recent uh, research looking at uh, plastic particles that might yeah. be airborne that a, a mother might breathe. And I would, can you tell us a little bit about that? With the, this, to put it out there, the caveat, I know you're not trying to scare 
pregnant women, trying to keep them inside, trying to keep them from breathing things or doing no. it or walk around with masks no, or anything like that. No, no, um, not at all. That's the last thing the last that thing I'm trying to do, especially having two children my own. Pregnancy <laughs> is difficult as it is, and it's not my job to tell people what to do and not what, what not to do. Excuse me. It's, it's my job just to present the information as we know it. And just to put it out there, you know, the vast majority of women who are pregnant breathe stuff have perfectly fine yep. perfectly fine offspring and there's perfectly there's, there's, fine yeah however yep. we perfectly live in a fine. world where there are more and more man-made engineered particles that are very very small some of them have commercial uses some of them are a lot of you know cosmetic products all these sort of things and so we are breathing these things and it's i would say it's very worth it to know theoretically what could be happening it is. Yes. It is. Yeah. And and what prevents some of those things from happening, I think, is is equally as important to know. So if we know that people are being exposed and we know that from some research that was done out of England and out of Europe, we know that the particles are reaching the placenta. And so the question is, what happens next mm -hmm. um, if they actually reach into the fetal compartment and how that plays a role in fetal development. And that's an interesting overall. thing. We're not necessarily talking about things that are moving across the placenta. They could oh, be. They could, they be. could be. But it could also be things effects in the placenta that are influencing how the placenta feeds a, a, a growing fetus. Correct, yes. Both, it either, can be both sides. Yeah, mm -hmm. both sides of that. Yep. And so mm -hmm. tell us, uh, I know you wanted to talk about your work with some of some more details of what you're finding. So Yeah, so we, we wanted to yeah. answer just the question we were talking about is if it is the particles causing a reaction in the maternal side and that's what's leading to these small outcomes or are we also getting some translocation from the mother's lung all the way into... The fetal compartment and so we got into plastics originally because it was a particle that we could uh, label with a fluorescent tag or fluorescent material and therefore we'd be able to track it where it went and so we exposed some animals uh, is this plastic material at all related to i might mispronounce it the bisphenol a we hear about from water bottles so it did it, i say that right bisphenol a okay, yes okay. yep the, the bpa so it is in that bpa is a chemical that's in some of these plastics okay. but the BPA is just a component of it. It's not necessarily the it's plastic not the, itself. So it's not the airborne thing you're studying? No, no, no. Okay, okay. Um, it could be a component of the airborne thing that we're oh. studying because plastics are formed with all kinds of industrial chemicals being used to get this outcome okay. that you want them to have. So the difference between a hard plastic and a soft plastic or a styrofoam, for example, oh. it, the chemicals that are involved in making that plastic might include BPA. And so we started looking at polystyrene particles in particular, mainly because I could get them with this fluorescent tag, and we wanted to see if we would find the fluorescence on oh, the other side of the yeah, placenta. And so we exposed the moms, and then we looked at the fetal pups, and we indeed found this fluorescent material on the other side. And so the fluorescent tag, of course, was tagged to our polystyrene, so where we saw fluorescence means that we saw particles there as well. And so we saw some of these particles uh, in the fetal liver and in the fetal heart. And wow. what was concerning from a health perspective and exciting from a scientific perspective is that we found them in the fetal brain as wow. well. But remember, so, too, that's before, I'm assuming, some of that's before the blood-brain barrier is formed well, in, that, in utero. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And so that's always the caveat is you yeah. think as an adult, we're fine. It's yeah. not getting across the blood-brain well, barrier. Don't. But you're exactly right. In the fetal pup, they don't have a blood-brain barrier developed yet. And so if anything, it may develop after. And we're not sure yet if those particles remain uh, within the brain or if almost sealed in by the blood-brain yeah, well, barrier. If, they get, if they're in there, they could be trapped in there exactly. for the animal's lifetime. And then they exactly. could potentially be interfering 
with the job of the nervous system with all the things that it does. And that is leading to some of the behavioral work that's being done as well, looking at these particles and identifying uh, behaviors outcome. Um, in our work, we've seen some memory issues, and I know other people who've looked at these particles have seen some other behavioral wow. issues as well. Well, even, even issues in the liver. You said one of the places that goes to the liver, yep. that could be a lifelong change in how the liver yep. works. And then the fetal heart as well, we're mm -hmm. seeing them. So admittedly, those are the places that we looked, and that is um, makes us a little bit nervous because it seems that everywhere we look, we're well, finding Well, I was going to ask particles. you that. It, it, have you looked everywhere, or you, you pick some of the main ones? We pick the main, main ones, ones right? yeah. We, we pick the big ones. Um, we're looking for kind of where blood flow would be turbulent and where filtering would take place. Mm -hmm. um, so that being said, just because we find them there doesn't mean that there's a toxicological outcome mm -hmm. either. And so that's, that's where too. some of our studies are, are starting to look, that uh, we've been exposed to particles since cavemen started building mm -hmm. fires. And so there's it can't all be bad, I guess. It might just be that it is at some point. And so just as you were alluding to mm -hmm. before, we're not doing research to be a scare tactic. We're mm -hmm. doing research to be able to answer some of these questions of where are the particles going? What are they doing when they're there? Mm -hmm. So that's what some of our work is looking at now of the, what are they doing when mm -hmm. they're there? Yeah. So. And, and even if there is a change, the change in and of itself doesn't mean there's a, a, a decrease in the ability of whatever organ it is to do whatever that organ is. Right. It could just be right. there. It could be working a little bit differently, right. but it could be within normal bounds. Right. That's the amazing part is that the in physiology, there's always a compensatory mechanism, it seems. So it might not be yeah. the way that everybody's doing it, but it might work for that yeah. system. And, and if some system is really, really important in physiology, you call it compensation mechanisms, right. but there's probably an alternative way achieving the same thing. Yes. It's not even, com it's a completely end around. Exactly. If, there's a lot of redundancy. There is. There is. If, just if we, to, if to keep we talk, We talk a lot about it. And so where in the ideal world, what is the future of your research? Where are you going? with all this? So in the ideal world, we're starting to identify some of those mechanisms. And once we identify the mechanisms for the dysfunction that we're seeing. So the mechanisms of change at this Mechanisms point, of, of change. change. So for Potential example, change. we were talking about changes in blood flow. Mm -hmm. And so the blood vessels are made up primarily of two types of cells. One is the inner lining of the blood vessel known as an endothelial cell. And that, in my opinion, of course, is an amazing organ. Um, it's an endocrine, autocrine, and paracrine organ in that it releases factors that both it acts upon and other cells nearby act upon as well. And then those other cells nearby are primarily vascular smooth muscle cells. And so we do a lot of work to make sure that the endothelial layer and the vascular smooth muscle are working the way that they should be. And if we find that they are actually not reacting the way they should be, not producing the factors as the controls are, then maybe we can come up with a therapeutic intervention targeted at that change. And so that's what some of our recent work has been looking at, looking at endothelial dysfunction and some um, different pharmacological agents that may be given to the moms during pregnancy to help blood flow in the uterus okay. to the placenta and to the fetus. And you're not coming at this as like an eco-terrorist who wants to shut down <laughs> human production. Thank you for no, smiling. No. The radio can't no. pick that up. Yes, um, true. But you want to find out, saying these, these are the realities of the world we live in. Right. And what effect are they having on physiology and potentially right. behavior? Right, right. I, lo I look at my job, again, not to be a scare tactic. I look at my job just to be able to provide each individual the most information that they can to make their own choices. Um, and so I... 
I said the other day that I still microwave things in plastic. I know that that's not a good thing to do. However, some people need to eat quickly and to do that. <laughs> like your children. You, like my children. <laughs> and so um, sometimes the, the end justifies the means, I guess. And so hangry is one of those things. <laughs> yes, that is, that, is a, that is a very, very, very real thing. Um, so is there a political component to the research you're doing? I've been asked that before, and I didn't get into science to go into politics. So there is. Um, there is, of course, in everything. Um, the EPA is in the news on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned NIOSH. NIOSH yeah. um, is a component of the CDC. Okay. So um, they are in the news. The How air pollution is perceived is is in the news. Water quality now is, is huge, and mm. specifically the microplastic concentrations in water both in our bottled water and in our water that's coming out of the tap, and then in our ocean water as well. So I think there is a political component, and I think it's my job to provide evidence and provide answers to the people who are interested in going into politics. And, and I'm hoping you'll let the data that you accumulate determine the direction you're going to move with this, which is sort of one of the reasons I'm asking it. You're not going in with a political agenda. Oh, no. I'm going in as I started as an athletic trainer, and right. somehow I ended up in toxicology. So mm -hmm. I'm going in because these are the questions that are posed, and they're the questions that are posed as I present my work. They're the questions that wake me up at night. They're the questions that come up every time we have um, the ability to present our work and have a conversation similar to this one. Um, the beauty of our work is that I leave with more questions than answers every time I have one of these conversations. And so it's not not politically driven or meant to scare. It's really meant to get answers to questions we don't know the answers right. to. And you're going to let the data drive a direction. Of yes. And people need to know yes. that good scientists are taken where they're going with the data they obtain. Yes. They're not trying to get a specific. No, no, no. Right. I, I was kind of hoping that we weren't going to find these particles in the fetal pups. And then we could say, oh, it's just because of a change in the mom. But in fact, no. Now we're looking at a whole new generation based on this gestational exposure. Wow. And, and theoretically, it might go on, too. It might. This There's is, always uh, that more, next more question. More re research yes. questions. See, there we go again. Um, unfortunately, we are running out of time. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com, live from the Clarney's Public House Studios. Thank you to listening to Health 411. This program is part of the Ryder University Health Studies Institute's efforts to bring people together to talk about all aspects of health care. I hope today's program has helped inform you about the particles that are in the air that we breathe and how they affect us um, and animals and pregnant animals. We're talking to Dr. Phoebe Stapleton. Thank you so much Thank you for coming, for and, and I hope we can continue this conversation at another time. Um, you're a great example of how you took big society issues, epidemiological issues, and broke them down and developed a reductionistic model that you can actually Thank study you. and find potentially find cause and effect. I'm very Thank impressed. You. If you have any questions and or comments about this program or the Health Studies Institute at Ryder, please email us at health411 at rider.edu. Thank you for taking the time to listen to your health with Health 411. Dr. Jonathan Karp is here from Ryder University's Health Studies Institute every Sunday at 11 a.m. For more information about the Health Studies Institute's programs, call 609-896-5093. That's 609-896-5093. Or find their webpage on rider.edu under academics and academic programs. Programs. Be sure to tune in every week to expand your knowledge and perspective. And don't forget to stay healthy.